Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is author Michael Lockett, the author of In the Cut, a new release on our Catamount Press imprint. Life in Appalachia is like a kid standing in the center of a seesaw. It's fragile balance, somewhere between the old world and the new. Flat broke or getting by, rooted in place or getting out. If the seesaw comes down hard, it knocks folks right off. Think laid-off miners, grave diggers, dishwashers, Mennonite farmers, and Walmart cashiers. Folks in the cut live somewhere between the balance and the fall. Michael Lockett has an MFA from Carlow University. His stories have appeared in the Northern Appalachia Review, Prometheus Dreaming, and Taint, 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 among other journals. He's a lover of the short story genre and inspired by the works of Brees D.J. Pancake, Lewis Norden, and Catherine Mansfield. Lockett is from central Pennsylvania and now lives in Pittsburgh with his partner, Cats and Birds. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Lawrence. So, a uh, couple questions at the outset. How do the cats and birds get along? Um, well, you know, it's, it's in a way. <laughs> so, I, uh, my previous cats who have since passed away loved the birds, and they would sit on the cats' backs, and they didn't bother them. But I've since inherited some new cats that are former strays in the neighborhood, okay. and they just want to eat the birds. Because when I think of cats and birds cohabitating indoors... I am reminded of Sylvester and Tweety from my childhood, so that, that's what comes to mind. <laughs> but yeah, the, the birds are not winning right now. Yeah. The cats are winning for sure. Yeah, yeah. I and, do have a funny, tragic, tragic story um, about a former bird that my partner squashed at one point in time. Oh gosh! Um, but we'll we'll say that for another day. Okay. And then <laughs> Lockett is from Central Pennsylvania. Well, I'm in Central Pennsylvania. Central Pennsylvania is a big area, so like. I think a while back, James Carville described central Pennsylvania as Philadelphia on the east, Pittsburgh in the west, and Alabama down the middle. I'm in the Alabama down the middle part here in uh, Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania, near the the Susquehanna River. But where's your part of central Pennsylvania where you're from? If you're in Alabama, I'm in Pennsylvania. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, very rural. Um, I'm trying to think. We I was sort of lodged um, maybe 40 minutes between Altoona and State College, you know, which are kind of like the biggest, next biggest small towns. They're pretty big towns, I would think. But so, you know, if you wanted to go to um, some dying form of a mall, you would go in either direction there. But um, <laughs> definitely very rural routes. Wait, Punxsutawney, if I'm not mistaken, or is that further out? Uh, that's way further out, oh, okay. um, or Phillipsburg, Clearfield area. Ah, uh, Phillipsburg, Phillipsburg, yeah. Clearfield. Yeah, I've heard of both of them. Well, what's yeah, going on in, in Phillipsburg these days? Anything? Well, you know what? Um, uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> Fair still enough. nothing. Fair you know, enough. I, I was I'm back home recently, and I noticed they're they're getting more sprawl from State College, and I feel like it's um you know with uh, the changes in 220 i don't know how long that's happened 15 years it's a more direct mm. shot to state college you used to have to go port matilda you, you you go over the mountain and a lot of people used to know phillipsburg as a landmark town because you'd have to go through front street 
to get to State College or head out east, but now they bypass all of that. So yeah. um, a lot of changes there. I, in fact, when I go home and it's a really small town and I'm with my mom, I'm like, I don't remember how to get places. It's changed that much. Well, having uh, you know been working on Catamount Press and some of the canon, uh, the Henry Shoemaker short stories. Uh, we I love, pu- by the way. We've published a bunch of them, and, and you know he writes about those mountains where you are, where you were. Uh, very nostalgically, and, uh, you know, it, it was a totally different world to go back 100, 150 years from what it is now. You know, you didn't have sprawl, and there wasn't a state college as far as a university of any size, and, right. you, know, you know, things weren't spreading out from there. So. Yeah. Yeah, and my family, my roots are really, like, even, you know, more rural than the in the cut <laughs> from uh-huh. Phil So it's definitely a much more... Um, rural existence than even, you know, folks I went to high school with who lived in Phillipsburg or lived, lived in town. Yeah, so the uh, title of the compilation is In the Cut. Tell us what the cut is for those that are from outside the area. Oh, yeah, the cut's exactly, uh, it is where I grew up, so I think it's a place, right? We use the term in the cut like in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say it's kind of an anomaly, but I always... Um, synonymously referred to the woods and the strippins as the same thing and i realized like when you move out of the area most people wouldn't know what strippins are but they were places where you know like my grandfather lived in a uh, kind of a holler that was like um they did um clay mining for brick manufacturing Mm -hmm. and it was kind of cool so there were you know shotgun company houses on either side of the holler and then then a store but there was still forest behind his house but across the other houses on the other side of the road um, they had taken it just down to flat clay and rock, right? They'd strip mined it out. Yep. Um, yeah. So, I mean, really in the cut to me is uh, synonymous for a beautiful landscape, but it's a scar on the landscape. And I grew up very much in that, um, you know, there was a lot of that, um, you know, really polluted the water. So I had aunts, you know, everyone had well water, especially back then. And, um, I think they recently put it in city lines probably, I don't know, 10 years ago. But, you know, their hair would get red if they just used the hair in the house because it was so sulfur-rich from the wow. pollutants. Um, to me, I grew up with an outhouse probably until fourth or fifth grade. It was common, a lot of family, um, because the water, even though people had wells, you know, most of my family or people that lived in that area would go to Artesian Springs and you would haul fresh water, you know, even in the dead of winter just for cooking and um, cleaning. And, you know, if you wanted to wash your hair and have it not turn red from sulfur, um, so it's a place, um, dotted with strippings and, um, there would be mine shafts and, um, you know, you saw the remnants of, um, sort of that, um, post coal mining post, you know, people who have mine subsidence, like I know, I know a house mm-hmm. across from my cousins, they just would have like tremors and earthquakes. Their house was sinking, you know? Um, so very much in the cut to me is it's, it's a landscape that's sort of was marred or the, the remnants of, um, industry. Right, right. So there were definitely parts of Appalachia uh, following the the mountains northwest coal, which still is anthracite coal, and then valleys and mountains where there was none. And mm-hmm. uh, my ancestors in the Makantongo Valley on the east shore were just south of the coal mining areas like Shimokan and places like that, and then further north. So you cross the river, go west into your area, and I'm guessing that the uh, the coal mines were more on the northern tier, and the southern tier of mountains didn't have the coal, in all likelihood. If I'm if I've got my geology right, not that that matters yeah. all that much. <laughs> no, it sounds right. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, the other thing that's interesting is your use of the term holler. 
which uh, yeah. even though yins are from northern Pennsylvania, um, holler's a term you hear all the way down in Alabama and along, you know, that Route 81 all the way through the south. Um, you know, a term that obviously a uh, vernacular for hollow or a, uh, an opening in uh, in the valley and whatever. Maybe down, exactly. where, that's, maybe down where yeah, the crick is, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, it's a or it's like a, a an inlet. There's a road, whether it's a dirt road or something, and it it's probably residential, right? But it doesn't really. It leads off of a branch, but there's just a maybe gravel turnaround at the end. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's funny because I, I, I remember the first time I heard the word cul-de-sac. I was probably in my twenties. I was like, wait, what do you mean by cul-de-sac? <laughs> Is that like a bag you carry around? Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, Michael. Like, oh, that's a, it's a suburban hauler. <laughs> yeah. We do need to take our first break. I'm talking to Michael Lockett. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of independent, diverse authors. Hearth and Home Press brings you When I Listen to a Farmer by Pete Curran, a book of photos and stories from American farmers. Also check out Fly Fishing for Trout and Bass, a beginner's quick guide by Charles F. Johnson, and At Home, 92 home-based activities to keep adults and children busy, sane, and centered by Prudence Ingerman. Find these and other intriguing works at sunburypress.com. I'm back with Michael Lockett, the author of In the Cut, and we just spent uh, a few minutes talking about the cut, maybe getting a sense of place, which is so important in the literature of this region. The place is a very strong character, if not the most prominent. And give me a sense of the people now. You you mentioned uh, your you know your stories have all kinds of characters, anything from Mennonites to grave diggers and Walmart cashiers. So. Kind of give me a flavor of what you write about the people that you run into or think about. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah, these are people, and to me, it's sort of, um, I almost feel like when I write, there's a sense of ambassadorship, right? Because these are the people that I grow up with and that I align with, and this is who I am. Um, but it's people who maybe, um, who are kind of based on where they live in the region where we live. They're tied to the landscape, but they're people who don't necessarily, it's not a resource-rich area for the people who live there. Um, and so the idea for me is, I think it's, um, and again, back to the ambassadorship piece, it's the idea in keeping warm and a roof, roof over their head and food on the table. Um, and they're brilliant people, right? But people who don't have the privilege of writing about their lives in the places they live. Um, and I think that's, um, you know, we talk about the exploitation to me of the landscape in, in that area, but also I think there's been a great exploitation of the people mm. and, um, and the narrative there. Um, and so, um, I think particularly recently politically, politically, right. It's, it's the idea that people who are generally robbed of a narrative, um, the idea that, you know, Appalachia or that region is very much an outside looking in inside looking out place. And I think that they can be spoon fed certain narratives and, um, uh, you know, I think they're shaped by religion. They're shaped by cultural restraints. They're definitely shaped by place. Um, so for me, these characters are all at an intersection of sort of, um, that complicated space where Mm. you navigate life that's really confined by place, right? There's no easy out. Uh, like I say, there's no money bought solution. It's the idea that you are still confined to that space, um, no matter what happens, how you navigate it. Uh, It's, it's very much rooted. How many people are trying to get away from people 
versus how many oh. people are trapped and can't get the hell out. I mean, you seem, you know, one thing I appreciate about when I drive out into the region and I explore, it's magical to me. I, my blood pressure drops. I love the hills. I love the scenery. I love the stories. I, I start reliving Stover, Shoemaker, and the things that you and PJ and Ben Moyer write about and others. And, you know, it feels like a second home to me. But I, I think about these people that are trying to get away or people maybe that can't get out. And, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, it is about survival, too. Absolutely. Yeah, they're driven by survival. Um, yeah, I feel like there is a great divide. Like, I have siblings, you know, I have family who just sort of look at me and think, why would you ever leave here? Um, for me, and I noticed with a lot of people who've left the region, right, it, it is that sort of, like, forced hand of, like, uh, economic opportunity. So, you know, most of the people I found that do leave, you know, are did get a college education and kind of needed to seek employment somewhere. Uh, there's a, a large migration, Um of people who, you know, I think of social oppression, people who are queer, gay, um, I think particularly when this collection is written, mm -hmm. I think uh, there's less influence on that now. I think there's a much broader acceptance. But, um, you know, it was the idea if you ever wanted a life that you would never have one in rural America, especially if you were queer. I mean, it would be hard to partner. It'd be hard to live openly and freely who you were. So I feel like uh, those factors are a big drive for people to get out of the area and have been. Right, right. No, I get that. So, tell us a pick a character or two uh, out of this list of unusual, interesting people. You know, you go to a diner up there, and you probably see them come in and out, or you know, the local gas station or whatever. And you might not ever think twice about it. Somebody passing you in front of your car, you never know who they were, but guess what? They're a character in this book, they're, or they're like somebody in this book. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think, definitely, I would say, I'm trying to think of Evie and Lisa Frank Cosmos. I think she's a good example. And there are a lot of child narratives in the collection. I just, I love writing children. I've worked a lot with um, kids. I've worked in the mental health field over the years. And I think that they're so insightful. We don't give them enough credit, mm -hmm. right? But there's also like room for like that discovery and that vestiture and their character development. But, um, you know, she is a kid in a small town who's sort of trying to pick up her life after her, her mom, who is a meth addict, um, crashes into a, a local football coach, football heroes, um, car and hurts him and so she ends up spending time in prison and again people in the cut are confined by space so evie is still in the same classroom as the football coach his daughter um and she sees that she comes to school with something she covets and this lisa frank art kit um i know they were very popular in the 80s 90s 80s and now create had these ridiculous you know pegasus with rainbow wings and all these different colorful creatures and um were very popular then and, and she covets it but she destroys it. But to me, the, the importance of the collection or the story is like mm -hmm. that understanding of why would she do that? Why do people destroy beautiful things? And then when you understand her story, you understand why she would set her hands on it. So she's, she's kind of a character that really represents that confined space and how she's viewed in the community. You know, you have a, a community sort of rallying around this her football coach because he has value to the community where mm -hmm. Evie's family necessarily does not. And so there's, they're ostracized on so many levels. And, um, it's the idea that if she's ever going to be okay, so she, she sort of, sort of has normalized her, her life and her role there. And she thinks, oh, this is just sort of something that's just like set in the cosmos. It's just something she hears in science class. And, um, and then she realizes at the end, if she, 
if she ever has a chance, right, she has to start viewing herself and her life as an anomaly, separate from this identity that's sort of been handed to her. So I think she's a good representation of, of a lot of the characters in the collection and what they're what they're kind of reconciling. Yeah, it sounds to me like there's a thread or a, a, I would describe it as a wide disparity between maybe the economic situations of people in the region. Like when, when you're in a more Absolutely. suburban area, you, you know, you do have your middle class that, that tends to dominate and, you know, rich, poor, middle class, middle class is, uh, you know, most of the sprawl where the shopping malls are and the highways and all the mm-hmm. cul-de-sacs and so on. Um, yeah. It's like my nightmare, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then it seems like in, the suburbs. Yeah. <laughs> the region that we're talking about, there's a lot of hard scrabble people that are trying to survive. They might own some land, but it's on a hillside. Maybe it doesn't have the minerals underneath right. that they had hoped, you know, years ago. <laughs> right. Be, or they don't have the rights to them. That's pretty common. Yeah, there you go. And then, you know, you have some wealthy people that may, might own a lot but aren't even hardly ever there. Um, exactly. I mean, it, that's really defined, the um, again, that outside looking in, right? I think that the, the area has been shaped in terms of economics by outside interest. Um, and, you know, and they always, you know, they've come in and they've, they take the resources and, you know, the best of the people who live in those regions, those rural parts that have been strip mined or where industry has had a big impact, yeah. um, really have only ever gotten a job that helps them barely survive. Yeah, I know talking to PJ Piccirillo about uh, the genre, the literature from this region, do you see uh, in your travels or experiences a difference between uh, the area you're from and maybe the area further south? Say you go down into West Virginia and beyond, into uh, the deeper south. Oh. Do you, have you noticed much difference? Do you think? Do you think there really is much difference? Do you think this is more uh, just? I'm, uh, yeah, I, I, I'll be honest. I don't think there's much difference. And when I've been in those places, really, and um. You know, even like, um, you know, my faith of origin is, is Pentecostal holiness. Yeah. So that is definitely rooted in um, some form of like Appalachian, you know, Christian worship, right. religious practices. So there's such a commonality. I think in terms of how people identify themselves in the region, I think that's, it's it's very um, interesting to me. Because I feel like most people right in central Pennsylvania don't readily say, hey, people would say I'm Appalachian right. um, in other regions. But I feel like definitely as you move through West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, there, there is that more um, defined heritage where I feel like I'm not sure what it is where we don't readily identify with that as, as much as we probably should. I always laugh at my friends too in Pittsburgh, right? And I'll do this, like we had um, people for a party and did like a trivia game, right? And it was, it was like one of the questions was, this city is known as the crown jewel of Appalachia. No one from Pittsburgh would say Pittsburgh ever. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but it is. You know yeah. what I mean? So there's a there's a sense of um, separate identity. And I think it is definitely much more tied to actual just a general place where you're from. I think Appalachia up here is much more of an academic term right. than, uh, than a ready usage of identity. It could be. We're talking to Michael Lockett. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books brings the reader unique and independent works of fiction and nonfiction. Oxford Southern is our educational and academic imprint. Releases such as Philip Mosley's Telling of the Anthracite, Art a la Carte, a memoir of a wayfaring art teacher by Marianne Bickett, and Mildred Schindler Jansen's autobiography, Surviving Hitler, Evading Stalin. Click on the Oxford Southern link for more at sunburypress.com. 
I'm back with Michael Lockett, the author of In the Cut, a collection of short stories about the northern Appalachia region and a lot of interesting characters, hard scrabble characters surviving in the in the cut uh, in the this this region of uh, maybe economic trials and who knows what else. But I, I see, uh, you know, when I read the intro and was thinking about the stories, you you do mention Mennonite farmers and being of Mennonite descent, Lancaster County. I know my kinfolk have spread out all over the place, and I guess they're even out there. So tell me about Mennonite farmers out in the hills. <laughs> what are my kinfolk doing up there? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I think there's a, a nice intersection. Where I'm from, um, I'm trying to spare, um, right, but you mm-hmm. have these, uh, this idea of, uh, like, you know, uh, Puritans and, and uh, oh, yeah. kind of um, born and raised uh king james christians right like we only value the king james bible so again i think pentecostal holiness which i grew up um with a family practice of is is very similar where there are dress codes and um Mm -hmm. you do have a literal interpretation of the king james bible you're discouraged from any narrative that doesn't align with that um it's so it's that profound form of separatism um in the collection the particular story about the mennonite farmer is a farmer it's called um, a good father and a young daughter who has spina bifida mm-hmm. and hydrocephalus, and um, and so they seek to get help, sort of during his wife's pregnancy, and it saves the wife and it saves the baby. But he he has um, questions of faith and his perception and how he deals with the child and the idea that you know maybe would have been better off or life would have been better off for her, maybe even himself and the family had she not survived. And so they're at the hospital and. Um, there's an emergent surgery or they need to talk to the doctor some more. And he kind of has to go home and do some things and he goes about his day and his life. Um, so it's really, um, to me, it's, I think it's easier in uh, literature, right? You, you always have to think about your relationship with your reader to say, Oh, Mennonite, because then otherwise I'd have to explain Pentecostalism, which is kind of akin to that, you know, in the Amish and Mennonite are yeah. definitely related. Um, I just, I jokingly call Pentecostals the hillbilly Amish, but, um, <laughs> place without writing um, the power, the constraints, or or the influence of faith, and that very puritanical practice of Christianity that has so influenced the region. Mm-hmm. Um, it still does significantly. So I know this, uh, as we're recording this, the book is coming out very soon, will be available wherever books are sold. Michael, uh, what plans do you have as far as any events coming up, anything related to the book, or other things that you're up to? Do have a reading in September. Um, I think it's the 22nd at Carlo with another, um, she's actually my mentor, and I think she's a wonderful writer, Carolyn Greenberg. Um, she's had two short story collections, and um, she just had a novel that got, got a lot of notoriety, so I'm really excited about that. Um, so that's definitely coming up. So I do have an author's page, um, I'm not sure if I can make that available or how to do that, but I'm definitely looking to promote the book as much as possible. I really, you know, it's it's, it's so meaningful that, you know, Sunbury and Catamont have really um, taken on the work. I've worked very hard on the collection, so I feel like I really just want to promote it and get it out there as much as possible. Yeah, as do we. And, uh, you know, like I, I've said many times when talking about Catamount, we're we're both working on the canon, the older works, the, the authors from the past who helped define the early literature of the region. 
and a lot of it's still very interesting and at least gives you an expanded view of that sense of place and the people and their heritage. But it just seems like as we move into the present and look at what's being written about the region now, a lot of that character remains and, and it is uh, it is different than, than other places. And you, you do have all these tensions that you've described. I mean, you have them in a lot of different settings, but I, I would say the region is... You know, it has its own character for sure. Absolutely. Um, it's unique in that sense. There's so no place like it. What else are you writing? Are you, do you have anything else in, that you're uh, working on? Anything else planned? I actually do have a... Um, currently, I'm working through uh, just kind of doing some self-editing on another short story collection that I kind of want to get out of there. Um, and I think it's a little more even contemporary than this collection. Like, um, In the Cut is definitely set between like 1984-97 is the window. So this is maybe a bit more contemporary in terms of like you know, um, appellations that do maybe leave the region. Um, so they're kind of like set loose in the broader world too. So I think um, for me, that's a fun idea in a, in a next phase to kind of move with the writing. Um, so I'm definitely working on a collection that has a lot more themes of, um, you know, not just as confined by space, but still confined by the eternally confined by space, identified by space for sure. Mm-hmm. Now you, you're creating uh, writing about a lot of different characters and situations has anything uh, started to develop into a novel or novella? Anything a little longer? Oh, yeah, actually, I have a, a so I'm taking a bit of a writing respite for the remainder of summer. Um, you know, winter's always a good time to write, but I definitely see at least a novella. Um, I'm thinking of maybe something along the lines of The Trouble with Eli. And I'm thinking maybe it's the idea of like a kid who's actually um, his, he, he and his mom had stepped outside of the, um, Mennonite community for a while. His mom married a, a guy who's just a regular townie or a secular sort of guy. The marriage doesn't work, so they go back to live with his grandparents who still very actively practice their faith on a farm. Um, and um, I think maybe he sort of has questions of his um, sexual identity or orientation, but maybe in a very young, innocent way still. And um, so how, I think it's it would be interesting to see how the family navigates that, not in a way that it's... Um, you know, I think those narratives traditionally people want to bait on, oh, here's a significant source of conflict. I right. think it's going to be more a significant source of res- resolution, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do they protect him and love him? And how do they make uh, decisions of, of, as a family in his best interest? So I think I think we need to go there. It's, it's way overdue. Yeah. Um, yeah. That intersection of faith and conservatism and, and the reality of, of who people are and how, how they navigate that. Um, is a very complex thing. And to me, that's what's worth worth writing about, not just sort of like these broader ideals of, you know, either just generally it's either love is love or non-acceptance. I I think we all live somewhere in between. Well, uh, we also have an event coming up in Ebensburg. Um, Gosh, I'm forgetting the date, forgive me. But um, uh, uh, Catamount Press is sponsoring that, and we'll have your book on the table there. If you happen to stop by, that would be wonderful. And uh, love to stop by. I also know next uh, spring there'll be another um, event for the Northern Appalachia Review and the the Writers Association that PJ runs. And uh, I think that's at St. Francis University. And uh, I I know we'll have a spread there with all this book, all the books and all the new ones. And Michael, your book will certainly be uh, prominent there as well. I'll be there, too. I love that event. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. All right, Michael, anything else you'd like to leave the audience with? 
Oh, I just just want to say thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.